Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn also the other. Also, if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, this morning, the Sermon on the Mount continues in Matthew. Um, Last week, last couple of weeks, as a matter of fact, we've been listening to Jesus give some instruction to his disciples about what it means to be a a follower of him. And uh, I want to say that this morning, as we read this, this story, as we have read this story about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and things like that, I want to say the context of hearing this text is not so much the time when Jesus is speaking, but really we need to place ourselves in the community Matthew is talking to some years later. Now most scholars would pinpoint that to be around 75 to 80 CE. So uh, in, in the year 80, 75 to 80. And in this time, the, the temple had been destroyed in an effort by the Romans to put down a Jewish rebellion that began in 66 CE. A rebellion that many Christians did not participate in, despite the fact that they were still, for all practical purpose, Jews in the eyes of Rome and probably in their own eyes, really, for that matter. And why didn't they participate is a good question. One, because early Christians, quite frankly, were expecting Jesus to come any moment. Any moment now, Jesus would be coming. And uh, for them, they were seeing the signs. And in fact, the destruction of the temple, kind of one of the ways they started making sense of that was the, the expectation that Jesus would be coming soon to straighten everything all out because it looked to them like all heck was breaking loose. And so why take up arms against Rome just to get killed and, and suffer and all of those when Jesus is coming any moment now? Another reason that they didn't participate in the Jewish rebellion was because Jesus taught nonviolent resistance and radical love. 
And by the time the Mathian community is reading this text, they themselves are suffering under a certain, or at least their perception is that they are suffering under persecution, either by their neighbors, uh, by their former community in the synagogues. By this time, they're starting to get a lot of pressure to leave the synagogues, or they're getting kicked out of the synagogues altogether because all they keep talking about is Jesus which is annoying everyone. And so they start shoving them out and saying, you know what, if you're going to be all about Jesus, you can't be here anymore. And of course, that causes a lot of strain in the communities. And so, uh, you know, whether real or perceived, and of course, Rome is, uh, is uh, you know, pressing its thumb down on its subjects, Jews and Christians alike. And so whether real or perceived, the Matthean community is feeling persecuted and Matthew throughout his gospel is addressing those issues quite a bit and throughout Matthew clearly as they address the issues of persecution you hear a call to nonviolent response Matthew 24:16 in speaking about the signs that the end is near and it makes an allusion to the time when Antiochus Epiphanes IV erected a statue of Jew of, of Zeus in the temple which remains to this day in the collective mem- Jewish memory as the desolating sacrilege and gives us he gives them this instruction to the early to the early Christians. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. So when when Matthew is talking about signs of the end of the world and all of that kind of thing, when signs that 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 the end is near, signs that Jesus will be coming soon. He talks about this incredible persecution that is like that time when Antiochus erected the statue of Zeus in the temple. And his instruction to the community is not take up arms and fight. It's not go about you know, terrorizing the Romans. It is flee to the mountains. Get out of the way. Run to the hills. So a very nonviolent response to that. And today, we hear Matthew offering a glimpse into what nonviolent resistance looks like in the first century Christian community. And there's a few things that go on here. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Now some have suggested that this, this posture of turning the other when one's when you get hit that this posture of turning the other way uh, will make the blow to your face a little bit less severe now I don't know about that but at any rate some have suggested that the the suggestion here is to try your best to protect yourself but do it with nonviolent um, resistance uh, give your cloak if someone asks for your your coat, give them your cloak also, or what? Let me, I should go quote this right, right? Uh, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. Now, this is not charity. This isn't saying be generous with your stuff. When they take it from you, it's not charity. 
when they when they sue you because and the context I'm imagining here is that you have fallen short on either your taxes to the Romans or your taxes to the temple, your taxes to the Pharisees, or your taxes to the synagogue, or your taxes here, or your taxes there, or you have fallen short because someone has put you in debt, you have no way to pay your bills, so you go down to one of these you know, same day or uh, paycheck loan places and they take you for everything you've got and you don't have any money and so they sue you for you. They'd want to take your coat. And so, uh, and here, what they're kind of saying is, fine, take my coat, take my cloak, take the whole thing. Leave me naked and alone out in the thing. It's kind of like the widow's mite. You know, we always think the widow's mite is about generosity. But I think the widow's mite is about, uh, is about the oppression of the, the insistence that we pay, that the, that the widow pay the temple tax. She has nothing, and yet here she is. She is required by law to bring a tax to the temple. And it's as if she's saying, here, take everything. You've taken everything from me. Take All you do is take. So here, have it all. And it's, it's a kind of passive resistance. It's a kind, it's a way of saying, you can sue me for my cloak, but I'm giving you my coat, or the other way around. You can, you can take my coat, but I'm giving you my cloak. Where is the power? The power is here, not out there. It's a way of regaining. When you are powerless, this is a great way to, to take the power back. And here's my favorite one. Go the extra mile, right? Anyone in the Roman world can be conscripted to, to labor for the Roman army, or a Roman citizen for that matter. And so basically they can force you to carry their stuff. Let's say you're a Roman citizen or you're a Roman soldier going off to class and you got your backpack. Well, you can grab some poor, poor person on the side of the road and you can say, hey, come carry my backpack to school for me. And they can require you to carry it for one mile and then they have to let you go. And imagine this, you're a Roman soldier and you're, they're lugging your stuff around and it's been a mile and they go, okay, you can put it down, we'll get someone else. And they look around and you keep going. You keep going like this. And they're like, wait a minute, hey, I said stop. And you just, you just keep going for another mile. And they're, pretty soon they're frustrated and of course you're in the position of turning another cheek again because they're so mad at you that they start beating on you a little bit. So it's a kind of taking back power you tell me to walk a mile i'm going two miles (laughs) right (laughs) it's a way of taking back power and, and and resisting what the world is imposing on the kingdom of god and finally we get to love your enemies love your enemies you know, I can imagine the Matthean community is sitting there going, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you in turning the other cheek. I'm with you in, uh, in you know, giving away my cloak. I'm with you in going an extra mile, but love these guys? I don't think I want to love these guys. That's a tall order. That is a tall order. Love your enemies? How do you do that? How do you... How do you turn to those who are oppressing and say, I love you? I think that's a difficult thing. It becomes 
it becomes a challenge in the world we live in. It becomes a challenge in our personal lives. You know, many of us have had people in our lives that were uh, that were hurtful, that were mean spirited, that uh, harmed us. How do we love those people? How do we how do we pray for them? And so we can on a personal level, but then on a on a larger level too. How do we pray for those who would do us harm or take away the things we have or or cause our culture and our and our society to be one of fear and hopelessness? How do we love even those who put us at fear? And I, I have to say, you know, Lincoln was smart when he said this, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And here's some wisdom here that, that he got from Jesus, I would say, <laughs> in regards to loving your enemies. And perhaps it is the beginning with this attitude that we as followers of Christ, we as the purveyors of God's unconditional love we as beloved children of god along with every other human being who is also a children of god we have given up the right to have enemies really and we have no enemies is that perhaps the beginning of our calling to be those who are without enemies Today, our good friend Herb and, and Yosh are here to talk to us about the Japanese internment camps. Uh, and these two gentlemen were there, so they can, they can really uh, give us some insight there. In 1942, 1941 and 42, they were considered the enemy of our country. And they're going to tell this story after church. But I'm going to tell part of their story, and I hope I don't steal their thunder here a little bit, but uh, I want to talk about their pastor, Emery Andrews. And I've talked about Reverend Andrews before, but he's such a, he's such a hero. He's such an incredible hero in, in the world and in the life of American Baptists. So Emory Andrews became pastor to the Nisei community at Nisei, our second generation Japanese Americans. And Nisei, first generation Issei, second generation Nisei, and it goes on from there. What's, what's third generation? Sansei, and it goes on from there to the fourth and fifth generations. But uh, after the bombing, so he became the, the, the pastor to the Nisei community at the Japanese Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington in 1929. And after the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the entirety of his congregation were shipped off and incarcerated in a camp outside of Twin Falls, Idaho called Minidoka, where these two gentlemen spent several years of their childhood. All because of Executive Order 9066, which was signed on February 19, 1942, we just uh, spent the afternoon yesterday commemorating that date uh, with the Japanese American Citizens League up at the university yesterday, and they were here to participate in that. So, looking out onto an empty church, shortly after everyone was taken to Minidoka, Reverend Andrews came home and told his family, 
we're moving to Twin Falls because that is where my church is. And they packed up everything and they headed to Idaho. And upon arrival, he began to minister to the interned Japanese. And this did not make him very popular in Twin Falls, Idaho, or any of the little communities around. He was threatened. He was harassed in town. And on one occasion, uh, the owner of a cafe refused him service and had Emery forcibly removed from the restaurant because of his hostility toward him as he ministered to the Japanese who were interned in the camp. That same cafe owner set his sights on getting rid of the Andrews clan. And so he bought the house. This is how angry he was. He bought the house that they lived in and had them evicted. So they moved to a house right across the street. (laughs) Which I thought was kind of funny. (laughs) Uh, his, his activity not only upset the locals in Twin Falls, the FBI began to investigate Reverend Andrews, seeing him as a potential threat. And during his time there, Emery not only ministered to those in the camp, but he provided a safe place to stay for those coming to visit the residents of the camp. He made 56 trips back and forth to Seattle to retrieve personal belongings of the people who were kept incarcerated. All of their belongings of which were in the gym at the, or in one of the rooms at the Japanese Baptist Church there in, uh, in Seattle. It should be noted that the Baptist Church in Twin Falls joined Reverend Andrews in this ministry at a time when the notion was seen as unpatriotic and even giving aid and comfort to the enemy. You've got to keep in remember that these folks were citizens of the United States and were incarcerated there. Furthermore, beyond all the many stories that can be said about this, after the war was over and all of the Japanese community were set free from their internment camps, Reverend Emery joined with several others who went to Nagasaki, Japan to rebuild homes in Japan after we dropped a bomb. So there he was from America, an ambassador of the kingdom of God rebuilding the homes that we had destroyed among our enemy. That is what loving your enemy looks like. That is what making your enemy your friend looks like. That is what loving beyond all of those things that conspire from this world to tell us that we do not belong together. That is what loving looks like. That's what not having enemies looks like. It looks deep inside ourselves To see not what the world tells us to see, but to see what God tells us to see in other people. Beloved children of God, even when their skin is different, even when their culture and their food is different, even when their attitude is different, beloved children of God, Muslims are not our enemy. Mormons are not our enemy. Southern Baptists 
are not our enemy, and it pains me to say that, but the Lord compels me to say Southern Baptists are not our enemy. People are not our enemy. People in all their forms are beloved children of God given to us to love beyond what we are capable of so that everyone may know that that love can only come from God. Let us pray. Great and loving God, You have called us to love even in the face of difficulty. Even in the face of those whom we do not recognize in ourselves. Even in the face of fear. Even in the face of doubt. Even those who would do us harm. This is a tall order, God, and we ask for Your insight and wisdom in achieving that. For we know that only by loving radically can we ever hope to bring about the Kingdom of God. Thank You. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.